0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Simon Todd. I'm an assistant professor of linguistics here at UC Santa Barbara, and I'm really excited today to tell you about some of my research on the surprising amount of linguistic knowledge you can pick up just by listening. Before I begin, though, I want to first acknowledge that this work has taken place over a long period of time with a large group of people, primarily based at Takahui Rodoreo, the New Zealand Institute of Language, Brain, and Behavior. But as I'll show you a little bit later, we're also beginning some really exciting parts of this research here uh, in my lab at UCSB, uh, and I've got a lot to share about that. So let's dive into it. Um, what am I going to be telling you about today? Well. Today, we're going to be engaging with the big question of what it means to know a language. And I think we can all agree that knowing a language is a continuum. At the one end, when we typically think of what it means to know a language, we think of explicit knowledge. That's being able to use the language to communicate, to talk to people, know the meanings of words and phrases and things like that. But before we get to that explicit knowledge, we have to get some implicit knowledge, knowing what the words look like or sound like in the language. And this is where children typically begin. And I'm sure we've all had this experience as well. You could recognize that a, lang- a word is English because you've seen it before, but you have no idea what it means or how to use it. So what we're going to be focusing on today is this sort of implicit knowledge. And in particular, we're going to be focusing on a form of implicit knowledge known as phonotactics, which is how sounds get sequenced into words. So phonotactics is what underpins our knowledge of what form possible and impossible words in a language. For example, what lets us say that blisk is a possible word of English, even though it's not an actual word of English, whereas bnisk is not. And this impression comes from the fact that benisk there begins with the b-n sequence of sounds, which isn't found in any real English words. Phonotectics also underpins uh, the idea of what makes a possible word or a real word sound good for a language. So, for example, what makes twenties sound so much better than twelfths, and what makes the possible word clest sound so much better than the possible word shishosh. Now, uh, linguists have studied phonotactics extensively um, and come up with an idea of where that knowledge comes from. The idea is that a word sounds good if its sound sequences are found in many words in the language. So for example, let's consider this possible word clest. To determine how good sounding clest is, we break it up into pieces, clé, les, and est, And we consult a dictionary, or if we're talking about knowledge, we consult the dictionary in our heads, which is called a lexicon, and we see how many words there are containing each of these sequences. So for kle, we found a lot of words, cleanse, cleft, clench, and so on. Similarly, less, lots of words, and est in lots of words. Since all of these sequences are found in a lot of words, we conclude that clest is a good-sounding possible word. Now, we want to just dwell on this for a minute and emphasize that we went looking for knowledge of possible but not actual words. In order to get there, we had to consult knowledge of actual words. So knowledge of possible words comes from our knowledge of actual words. This is a really key idea here. But it raises a question. Well, what about children? What if you don't know explicitly many words at all? We found that uh, children are still sensitive to this phonotactic knowledge. For example, um, if you play a young child a word like clest, which is a good-sounding possible word, they'll respond favorably in various ways, whereas if you play them a bad-sounding possible word like shishosh, they'll respond less favorably. So young children have this phonotactic knowledge despite not having a large set of Uh, real words that they explicitly know. For them, the knowledge doesn't come from a lexicon, it comes from a proto-lexicon, which is implicit knowledge of these words rather than explicit knowledge, and it's devoid of any sort of meaning. It's just the forms of the words. So to to make this concrete, a lexicon, which is what adults all have in our heads, this is like a dictionary. So it has words, definitions, examples, a whole host of other information, whereas a proto-lexicon, which is what the children have in their heads, is just a list of words without any of that other information. But that's enough for the phonotactic knowledge. Now, this... uh, raises a a question. um, Where does this proto-lexicon come from? Where do these children get this implicit knowledge of words in the first place? And the answer is it comes from listening. Children are surrounded by language all the time. They're taking it in. And as they're listening, they're spotting patterns that come up in that language that they're listening to. That's words. And they're putting those words into their proto-lexicon. And so the question that we're going to be engaging with today is, well, what about adults? Do adults do this thing too? Do they build a proto-lexicon if they're regularly exposed to a language that they don't speak? So for example, if you take me and you put me in a situation where I'm surrounded by a language that I don't speak, will I build a proto-lexicon in that language? Um, to answer this question, we have to look at a situation where someone is surrounded by uh, a language that they don't speak all the time in a naturalistic setting. And for this, we look at Te Reo Māori in Aotearoa, New Zealand. A Māori is the indigenous language of New Zealand. It's also an official language of New Zealand, which means that there's a political and a legal mandate for its use. In addition to this, over the past 30 years or so, there have been really strong revitalization efforts for Māori. And as a result, it's now really widespread in culture. So, for example, it's used in pōwhiri, which are formal welcoming ceremonies, um, or haka, which you might have seen in sport. Uh, it's really common in books, TV and music, and it's peppered throughout uh, daily broadcasts on the news. In addition, almost uh, a a lot of the place names uh, and street names in New Zealand are in Māori. And there are a lot of loan words in New Zealand English, like kiwi, um, that are of Māori origin. And in addition, it's really common to greet people in Māori in New Zealand. So say something like kia ora, whether in person or by email. So New Zealanders are are, uh, surrounded by Māori all the time. However, uh, most New Zealanders have very little explicit knowledge of Māori, so the 2018 census found that only 1% of the population of New Zealand can speak Māori proficiently, and another 2.7% can hold a a basic conversation. The other 96% typically only know the meaning of about 70 to 80 extremely common Māori words. So New Zealanders are surrounded by Māori all the time, but they really don't have this explicit knowledge. So what we're going to do is we're going to probe the phonotactic knowledge that New Zealanders have of Māori in order to answer this question, do, they, do these New Zealanders who don't speak Māori have a Māori proto-lexicon? So to answer this question, we ran two uh, psychological experiments, which I'm going to uh, walk through now. So in the first experiment, we wanted to establish whether non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders have phonotactic knowledge of Māori. So to do this, we ran an experiment where we were testing whether these New Zealanders can accurately judge how good-sounding Māori non-words are. So we showed them a non-word like hino there, and we asked them to rate um, how much that uh, non-word sounds like. It could be a real Māori word on a scale of one to five. Now, the results that I'm going to show you here, we have along the, the bottom there, these non-words spend a really wide range of phonotactic scores. That is how sort of good-sounding they are. So as we move along the, the axis from the bottom, from the left to the right, Uh, the non-words become become objectively better sounding. That is, they they resemble real Māori words more. On the vertical axis here, we have the ratings that the participants gave. So as we move up the axis, these ratings are more Māori-like. And we've got three groups here. Uh, We ran this experiment on non maori speaking New Zealanders. That's uh, who we're interested in. But for comparison, we also ran it on fluent Māori-speaking New Zealanders and Americans who have no exposure to Māori. And those comparisons are going to be really crucial for uh, telling us what's happening with the non maori speaking New Zealanders. So we're going to step through these groups one at a time. Firstly, the non maori speaking New Zealanders. As you can see here, we've got this uh, line sloping up to the right. That means that uh, when the participants encountered a non-word that sounded objectively better, they gave it a higher rating. They thought that it sounded more Māori-like. So this shows that non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders rate these better-sounding non-words as more Māori-like, which implies that they have some sort of phonotactic knowledge of Māori. And when we compare this to what the Americans uh, what the results showed for the Americans, we see a much shallower line here. So the Americans are not as sensitive to the phonotactics as non-Māori speaking New Zealanders, which implies that the non-Māori speaking New Zealanders their knowledge comes from the experience that they have with Māori. What's really surprising is if we take these results and we overlay the results for the fluent Māori-speaking New Zealanders, plotted in red here, we see that they fall pretty much right on top of the black line, so right on top of the non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders. So this suggests that non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders are as sensitive to Māori phonotactics as Māori-speaking New Zealanders, which means that their phonotactic knowledge really is quite extensive. So we've established now that non-Māori-speaking New Zealanders have implicit phonotactic knowledge of Māori, but we are interested in uh, whether they have a proto-lexicon. So we have to go beyond that implicit phonotactic knowledge and ask whether they actually have some knowledge of Māori words as well. Now we're talking implicit knowledge, not explicit knowledge. So we want to get above the 70 to 80 words that they can actually define. So we're interested in answering the question, can they tell real Māori words apart from non-words, independent of knowing what the meaning of the word is, and independent of how good-sounding the word is. So for example, we would show them something like this, tāne, which is a real word in Māori, and they would rate uh, how confident they are that it is a real Māori word. And so the results are uh, laid out here. We've got... Uh, real words came uh, from a range of frequency bins, that is, they were more or less common in the language. So we've got on the left here, more common real words, and on the right, less common real words. So things that the uh, non maori speaking New Zealanders are more likely to hear, over here. Things that they're less likely to have heard, over here. On the x-axis, again, we have our phonotactics, so that's how good-sounding, objectively, the words and non-words are. And on the uh, vertical axis here, uh, now we've got their ratings of how confident they are that the the item is a real Māori word. And so we've got uh, results for words and non-words separately here. Looking first at the non-words, we can see this same pattern of sloping up to the right that we saw in the last experiment. So this means that participants are rating these better-sounding non-words as more likely to be real words. So this is, again, indicating their phonotactic knowledge. But What's interesting is when we compare the results for the real words now uh, in blue, we can see that um, they have the same thing. So the real words are more likely to be—the more. participants are more confident that the words are real words if they are objectively better sounding. But in addition, across all of these boxes, we see a gap. The blue line is always above the black line. That indicates that participants are consistently giving the real words higher ratings than the non-words, even when they sound as good as each other. So this is saying that uh, above and beyond the phonatectic knowledge that they have, they also have implicit knowledge of real Māori words, even if they don't know what those words mean. So this is all well and good. We found in the first experiment participants have phonotactic knowledge of Māori and in the second experiment that they have implicit knowledge of Māori words. But what we want to show is that these two things are related to each other. So their implicit phonotactic knowledge comes from their implicit knowledge of words, that is, comes from a proto-lexicon. So to show that this phonotactic knowledge comes from a protolexicon, we have to go beyond just showing that they have both kinds of knowledge. We have to connect the dots between these two experiments. We have to show that participants who have more implicit word knowledge, that is, who perform better in the second experiment that I showed you, also have more phonotactic knowledge. That is, they perform better in the first experiment. So what we did um, was we ran these experiments again on the same set of people. We had them do both experiments now in order. Um, And what I'm showing you on the bottom here uh, is the same layout as before. So how good sounding the word is, uh, the non-word is on the bottom. We're talking here. The experiment is showing um, the ratings for how Māori-like the non-words are. Uh, And those ratings are shown on the vertical axis here. So just like before, we're going to see lines sloping up to the right, indicating the phonotactic knowledge. And we're comparing two groups here. In the red, we're comparing uh, participants who have a lot of word identification knowledge. That is, they had a big difference in their scores between words and non-words in the second experiment. Um, And in blue, participants who don't have a lot of word word identification knowledge, they have no uh, difference between the ratings that they gave words and non-words in that experiment. So when we plot these two groups together, we see that both of them slope up to the right. uh, But crucially, the red line, that is the participants who have high word identification knowledge, is steeper. These participants are more sensitive... To the phonotactics. That is, if the word sounds, if the non word sounds worse, they rate it as less Māori like. If the non word sounds better, they rate it as more Māori like compared to the participants who have less ability to distinguish real words from non words. So this implies that the phonotactic knowledge that we see really is coming from a proto lexicon. So this is great. We've now established that the non maori speaking New Zealanders have a proto-lexicon and that proto-lexicon gives them phonotactic knowledge, but we don't know what that proto-lexicon looks like. In order to answer that question, we turn to computational modeling. So we have a couple of unresolved questions here. We've got, uh, firstly, how big is the proto-lexicon? How many words do non maori speaking New Zealanders know implicitly? And what's in it? What kinds of words are in it? Um, And are they even words at all? We can't answer these questions directly by looking into someone's mind and seeing what's in their proto-lexicon. So we we do the next best thing. We create artificial minds. Uh, We simulate different kinds of proto-lexicons and we compare them to each other. And what we're doing is we're comparing them for how well they're able to explain the experimental results if we can find simulations that explain the experimental results well, then we conclude that that is a good uh, candidate explanation for what the proto-lexicon in those participants looks like. So we build these simulations that are uh, creating proto-lexicons, and we have two ways of doing that. Firstly, we we try uh, proto-lexicons built from a dictionary. So... You have uh, 18,700 words in the dictionary. The participants have some random sampling of those words. uh, And all of the words in the dictionary are equally likely to be included in their proto-lexicon. All of the words are treated the same. We compare that approach with a proto-lexicon built by listening. So this is just like I was talking about at the beginning. Someone is constantly exposed to the language. They pluck words out of that language that they're listening to and put them in their proto-lexicon. Now in this situation, because not all words are occurring equally often, some words are more common than others, the words aren't all going to be equally likely to be included in the proto-lexicon. Common words are going to be much more likely to be included than rare words here, uh, which is going to give us a different looking proto-lexicon than in the dictionary case here. So what we did was we built uh, different sized proto-lexicons under these two approaches, uh, all the way from 1,000 words up to 18,000 words. And we compare these with a protolexicon that c- contains all of the words in the Teaka Dictionary, 18,700 words. So we have along the x-axis here how big the protolexicon is. As we go from left to right, we're getting larger proto-lexicons. And we have along the y-axis here um, a measure of the error that is associated with using this proto-lexicon to model the experimental results. So as we get lower on this axis, we're going to explain the experimental results better. So lower is better here. So when we look at what happens if someone knows all 18,700 words in the dictionary, we can see that their error is represented by this dash black line here. And when we compare that to what happens for various proto-lexicons of different sizes built from a dictionary, we can see that this uh, dictionary approach is not very good. That is, these purple circles take a really long time to drop down to the dash black line. So if you're going to build a proto-lexicon from a dictionary, it needs to be very large in order to explain the experimental results well. Conversely, if we look at a proto-lexicon that's built by listening, shown in the green triangles here, we can see that it drops down to meet the dash black line a lot faster. And what's more, if you look really closely at this, you'll see that it actually drops below the dash black line here. So knowing 4,000 to 5,000 words is enough to give you as much phonotactic knowledge as you would get if you knew all of the words in the dictionary. So this is really great news. A small proto-lexicon that's built by listening can explain these results better than a protolexicon lexicon that contains all of the words in the dictionary. So listening is really crucial here. But when we think about this, 4,000 to 5,000 words is still a lot when the, when we consider that these people only explicitly know the meanings of 70 or 80 words. So to implicitly know 4,000, 5,000 still seems like a bit of a stretch. So can we get it any smaller? Well, it turns out that we, we can get it smaller because there's a lot of redundancy contained in these 4,000 to 5,000 words. Most of the words in Māori are com- composed of multiple parts. So for example here, fare-nui. Fare is one part, nui is another part. Fare meaning house, nui meaning big. Fare-nui, meeting house or big house. Um, so these parts are going to be showing up across multiple words within this 4-5,000 to 5,000 word list. So if we, we consider instead that maybe what's in the proto-lexicon isn't these composite words but maybe it's these parts of the words which we call morphs. And if that's the case, then we can get fewer of them because we avoid this overlap between them. So to test this, um, we built more models uh, which are based on the idea that the part of the lexicon is built from morphs and that participants are able to recognize those morphs in the experimental items that they see. So it's laid, the, the results here are laid out similarly to before. Along the bottom, we've got protolexicon size going from 500 morphs up to 3,500 morphs. And on the y-axis, we've got the error associated with modeling the results in the experiment. So lower is better. This is the same dash black line as before, indicating what we get if we know all of the words in the dictionary. And we start by just comparing that with what we get if we know all of the morphs in the dictionary rather than all of the words. So this is a smaller set and it's more uh, focused. And you can see this is lower. So less error means this is a better model. So already we can go from having 18,700 words to having 3,600 morphs. And that's a great uh, step. But maybe we can go even further, right? Maybe the proto-lexicon doesn't need to contain all 3,600 morphs. Maybe, like we saw in the word situation, it can be smaller. We compare uh, proto-lexicons built from a dictionary. That is not the case. Um, So we see here the purple line takes a long time again to drop down to the, the dotted black line. Indicating that the words, uh, knowing 3,600 morphs is better than knowing any subset of those morphs if you're building a proto lexicon from the dictionary. But if you're building a proto lexicon by listening, um, again, we see that we drop down to meet the black line faster. Um, so building a proto lexicon by listening gives us better knowledge. Uh, than building a proto-lexicon from a dictionary. And again, we see that the results drop below the dotted black line. So it gives us even better ability to model what happened in the experiments than if we know all 3,600 morphs. In fact, it turns out that knowing 1,500 to 2,000 morphs is enough here. So if we build a really small proto-lexicon of morphs by listening, we can explain these experimental results better than if we have a protolexicon that contains all of the morphs in the language. So just to summarize, we found through our experiments that non maori speaking New Zealanders have extensive implicit phonotactic knowledge of Maori. And we found through our computational modeling that this uh, phonotactic knowledge is best underpinned by implicit knowledge of over 1,500 Maori word parts or morphs. And this is really surprising when we consider that these non maori speaking New Zealanders actually only know about 70 to 80 Māori words explicitly. So this is really, really amazing when you think about it. The implicit knowledge is far greater than the explicit knowledge, and all of this implicit knowledge just comes from listening passively in everyday situations. This is the first demonstration of a proto-lexicon in adults in a naturalistic, real-life setting. And it opens up a lot of possibilities. So I want to finish by telling you about some of the work that we're doing now to take this further. So one thing that we're looking at is whether the having a proto-lexicon gives an advantage when you come to explicitly learn the language. So for example, uh, we're just running a study just now um, that's testing whether it's easier to learn meanings of words that are in the protolexicon than non-words. So if you already have something, is it easier to attach the meaning to it than if you don't have that word uh, represented in the protolexicon? And we're also testing if there's an advantage in the classroom. So do students with larger proto-lexicons learn vocabulary more easily than students with smaller proto-lexicons? We expect to find support for both of these ideas because this is exactly what young children do. Uh, So think back to where I began, talking about young children. They start by not knowing anything explicitly, building this implicit knowledge of the proto-lexicon, and using that to bootstrap their explicit knowledge acquisition. So we expect to see support for both of these things. And it has really important implications not only for what's happening in the classroom, second language acquisition, but also uh, for language revitalization. uh, For situations like Māori where we have indigenous languages, endangered languages that need to do a lot to build their, uh, their population of speakers. If we can find that knowing, uh, having a proto-lexicon makes it easier for people to learn the language, then we get a lot of support for just putting the language out there a lot uh, as a way of getting a head start in those revitalization efforts. Another question that we're looking at is who has a proto-lexicon? So one thing that we have planned is to run these experiments with participants of different ages to test at what age the protolexicon develops. Do you have to have the exposure in childhood? Um, can you build a protolexicon of the same size in childhood or does it have to wait until you get uh, older? Things like that. We're also interested in really probing this idea of the importance of childhood further. By comparing what happens uh, with people who grew up in New Zealand and people who were born elsewhere and then moved to New Zealand as children. So do those people who moved to New Zealand, are they post-early childhood able to get enough exposure to build a proto-lexicon just as well as the people who grew up in New Zealand? And we're also looking at it the other way around. So if we have people who were born in New Zealand, spent their early childhood, in New Zealand and then moved overseas, how long is the proto-lexicon going to be retained for them? Are they still going to have that knowledge in their adult years, just like the people who stay in New Zealand have that knowledge in their adult years? Now, these are really important questions for laying out the theory of the proto-lexicon and really help engage our scientific understanding of what's going on. Here at UCSB, uh, we are really pushing further on the computational modeling side. Um, so, one th- question that we're asking is Do we even need this proto lexicon to explain the results that we saw in the experiments? Is there instead some sort of alternative? Um, questions like that. So, one thing that we're doing is we are building algorithms that test, uh, that simulate how these morphs could get into the proto-lexicon in the first place. So an algorithm that essentially listens to running speech in Māori and extracts morphs out of it. We're taking that and seeing how well that can explain the results that we've seen. And we're comparing it with other alternative models that don't rely on a proto-lexicon in order to generate phonotactic knowledge. So things like neural networks. And we're going to, uh, by comparing these two approaches, we'll be able to see to what extent do you actually need a protolexicon in order to get this knowledge? And the ways of getting a protolexicon are they actually feasible, uh, given how much exposure people have in the real world? Another thing that we are doing at the moment is looking at how general these results are. So can we get the same thing happening with other languages in other countries? So we're looking uh, specifically at Spanish or non-Spanish speaking people in California and Texas. We're asking if those people build a Spanish proto-lexicon. Now, this is uh, really interesting and really useful, not only because replication is foundational to science, uh, but also because Spanish in California and Texas differs from Māori in New Zealand in a number of really crucial ways. For example, um, the words in Māori, as I mentioned, are highly composite. Comparably, the words in Spanish are a lot less composite, Um, So by comparing these two situations, we can see how strongly this result relies on the highly composite nature of the words. One other thing that's really different between Spanish in the U.S. and Māori in New Zealand is how people feel about the language, uh, the attitudes that people have towards the language and its speakers. So the attitudes toward uh, Spanish and its speakers in the U.S., are a lot more negative than the attitudes toward Māori and its speakers in New Zealand. And so it could be that these differences in attitudes create implicit barriers to learning. um, And maybe the results that we saw in New Zealand are actually driven, not driven by, but facilitated by uh, the positive attitudes that we see. So these, again, are really useful questions for um, telling us how general the result is, for telling us more about some of the mechanisms underlying where the proto-lexicon comes from. And we're running these experiments right now, we're just about to start, Uh, so there's a lot to say. So Watch this space. Uh, Expect to see some really exciting things coming out soon. But for now, uh, that's it. I'm going to leave you on that promise of things to come, and I want to thank you for doing the really important thing, uh, which you now know is listening.